Amen. Turn, if you would, to uh, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Hope you enjoyed this week. Man, it's been amazing, hasn't it? Y'all, do y'all, <clears throat> I don't know how many of y'all are like this, but fall is my favorite season. I'm just telling you, I love it. I stay in a good mood in the fall. Don't, don't ask me long about February how things are going. But uh, I love the fall, man. I just love it. I love the leaves. Love the colors. People drop. People come from all over the world, literally, to come here to look at our dead, dying trees. You know, and we live right in the middle of it. It's just awesome. I love it. So I was, uh, <coughs> I was on the road last week. I went down, visited uh, some family members that have a farm in the middle part of Georgia and uh, Washington County, and hunted a couple of days. And when I go hunting, I I have like this one dietary list it is vienna sausages beanie weenies honey buns nabs y'all know what nabs are if you ain't from here you know what a nab is nabs a cheese cracker peanut butter and cheese cracker all right nabs that's good but that night they said uh hey we're gonna go to uh there's a new restaurant in town they live in a little town they said we're gonna go to this new restaurant i said man that sounds great so we won't buy you supper they got an awesome Ribeye steak, my favorite. Ribeye's my favorite, my favorite meal, ribeye steak. And uh, so we went, and, and it was good. It was a good steak. And I was thinking that night, you know, today, twice, I had about 60 grams of protein in one meal. But it was two completely different experiences. <laughs> okay? Last week, y'all, we spent 40 minutes eating ribeye steak. Yeah, if you were here last week, it does not get any better than that when it comes to Bible teaching. It just doesn't get any better than that. Like, like you're going to struggle if you think you're going to do better than that. That was like top shelf aged beef when it comes to the meat of the word. Let's dig into the Vienna sausages. One, two, three, go. All right. So here we go. Genesis chapter one. Say, hey, protein. We're going to leave full. Meet it up. It's going to be awesome. All the hillbillies are going to be like, oh, no, that was over my head. Here we go. All right. So, um, all right. So, Genesis 1. I want to start by reading a spoken word from a young lady named Madison Heflin. You know, we work in student ministry, and I just think this is awesome. This is from a young lady, 17-year-old girl named Madison Heflin. Uh, And if you want this after I'm done, we'll make this available to you. Um, This is pretty cool. This, this girl read this at a student ministry event with about 2,000 teenagers in the room, and I thought it was awesome. The, and I won't be nearly as cool in reading it as she was. It was awesome, but here we go. The speed of light is 299,792,458 meters per second. Some say the particles of this universe collided to make this beautiful earth in that amount of time. Combined energy made the freely grown flowers and fruits that stretch for miles, tiles made from rocks that are pressurized and heated to an exact degree, leaves and trees, a figure of adventure, picture the mountains and valleys and waterfall that flows to the ocean with a capacity of 352 quintillion gallons of water. An explosion in space crafted this beautiful earth in the matter of one second. I believe that is a lie. I simply cannot accept the fact that the leaves, trees, oceans, flowers, and the many forms of life around the most importantly 
and around, most importantly, us, we're created faster than the speed of light. And then I tell myself, there has to be a creator. There has to be some infinite being who holds all the power of the universe on his fingertips. His lips commanded the stars to the skies. The great vines, the thick pines planted by his hands, those plans for you and me didn't just fall from the sky. We were just made to rot and die. That lie has been drawn on their heads. There is no God. But the frauds that hold these lies have lost their foundation. So-called creation story doesn't end so normally. This immensely false theory ends suddenly, so abruptly. But how does it end? What happens to the stars and the flowers and the infinite forms of life? What happens to the earth that was created faster than the speed of light? I simply cannot accept the fact that all of this, that we were created to fade off into nothingness, something less than this beautiful earth that we were blessed to walk our feet upon. The bond that was so strong it created the earth didn't even plan out its ending. The pending thought that science has not yet resolved just concludes that God is not real. Consider your beliefs. They said, but I say it's time to reveal. Feel these emotions inside. It's more than a feeling. It's love. Shout to science that there is hope. There's a better future than just rotting on this earth. Rebirth in Jesus' name means living for what comes after all of this. Kiss this world goodbye because you're standing in a waiting room. Boom. Has anyone ever told you there is eternal life with Jesus Christ? This place is not our home. Heaven is. The so-called explosion in the sky said, this is it. But God said, this is only the beginning. So this thing, this theory at a distance, it has a name. It's called the Big Bang, which doesn't seem so big anymore, considering science never finished telling their story. Glory was given to the scientists, but they still don't know what happens to us when we die. We cry out for knowledge, and God answers us with, you die, yet you live. So I'll give you a story. It begins, Genesis 1-1, in the end, joy and praise evermore as reunited with our kind of creation in a matter of seven days God created the heavens and the earth and that's what I believe if a 17 year old can get it right I think we can figure it out and get it right I think God's made it clear enough to us as we unpack these first few chapters in Genesis and the account of creation I hope that your faith will be strengthened I know that mine was both in, in the hearing of the word last week and then in the preparation for tonight. Um, main point of the text, God created the first man and woman with the capacity to serve and obey the Lord with the responsibility to keep his commandments, placing him in the environment God had provided with every provision needed to fulfill his purpose, completing him with a corresponding partner in the service of God. We're going to look, we're going to thread this together the, the way these Verses. We're going to start in 125. We're going to go through 217 tonight. The way it threads together, because it's a pretty lengthy passage, but it's, but it's threaded with some words that I really want to make sure we zero in on. And those words are image, dominion. We're going to look at rest. What does it mean that God rested? We're going to look at breathed and formed. God breathed the breath of life. He formed the man. We're going to look at put. God put the man in the garden, and we're going to look at work and keep. God put him there to work and keep. So let's begin Genesis chapter 1. We'll actually start in verse 25. I'm sorry, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's a reference 
that's the first sort of reference to the Trinity. Theologians will say this is this hour that he's talking about is not God and the angels that he may have already created. This is God and and in three persons. This is the Trinity. God said, Let's make man in our image and our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. A lot of you have heard the story when Tuck was little, he was about seven, he killed a bear. We were hunting up on what's now Chestnut Flats. I think there's houses in there now. It's like a development. Killed a bear, and that night we were having supper, and uh, we were eating some meat from that kill and some uh, potatoes and onions. We was eating taters and onions, and they were fried. And, we, we're, and, and I said, all right, buddy, you return the, the, the thanks. You know, you say blessing. He said, dear God, thank you that today we took dominion over this bear. And uh, we had been working on, uh, you know, understanding what man's responsibility is. In these first few verses, we're going to see this idea of dominion and image as image bearers of God, what it looks like to take dominion. That's connected. As image bearers of God, we're to take dominion. Uh, verse 27, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed him. And God said to him, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of, the, of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the, the sixth day. As image bearers of God, the term image being used in the Old Testament sometimes of shapes and forms that, uh, that hand-graven idols would take. So they'd shape these idols out of um, metal or wood, and then they would worship. There's one story where uh, Isaiah is talking about the futility of idol worship, and he's like, man, this guy, he cuts a tree down, and he cuts that tree up. He carves an image with part of the tree. He takes all the scrap wood and makes a fire so that he can make a burnt offering to this wooden image that he's just carved and burned the scrap from. How crazy is that? So what you'll see with with the idea of image is that oftentimes image refers to something that's graven or carved out. But here the idea is that we are literally the image bearers, the reflection of God. We're, we're created in his image. And what that means is uh, four things that we have. We have spiritual life. What separates us from the rest of creation is our soul. Our soul. My buddy sent me a picture today of a cat. I mean, oh, man. This, is, this must be, okay, here we go. This is the, I, if you're visiting, we don't always talk about killing things at this church, okay? It was a cat of prey. He'd been hunting, and he, he's a predator, a hunter, that's this thing. And he sends me, and I said, dang, man, you got all nine lives in one shot, right? But there, that's not a thing, right? Cats don't have nine lives. Animals don't have souls the way humans have souls. I love my dogs. I love them. I got one dog named Ace. He's big, he's thick, he's fluffy, but he is not created in the image of God in the way that I'm created in the image of God. He's not. I love Ace. He's not, he's not an image bearer of God. He's, we have spiritual life. We have ethical and moral understanding. Ethical and moral understanding. Paul will talk in Romans about how the fact that those two things combined with the third category, which is conscience, we have conscience ethical and moral understanding and conscience there's a comprehension of right and wrong that all people possess like everybody man if you don't think if you don't think morality is woven into the fabric of humanity then steal something from somebody and see what they think about it right 
C.S. Lewis talks about this. He talks about how the fact that if I take something from somebody else, even if that person's an atheist who rejects the idea of God, the fact that he's offended by my action shows that there is morality and ethics and conscience hardwired into him. Why? Because we're image bearers of God. And last, the capacity to represent God. Humans have the capacity as image bearers. We are literally God's representatives. Adam was the first representative of God in creation. You and I are representatives of God. We represent God in creation, in the world, in community, in humanity. When we were going through the recruiting process and we go to these schools um, and, and we had to sit through these uh, uh, um, lecture presentations. There's a thing in the NCAA now called NIL, name, image, likeness. It means that if you use the name, the image, or the likeness of an athlete who is a collegiate athlete, he has to receive compensation for that because you're profiting from, use, what was happening is they were taking these college athletes who couldn't receive any compensation and they were making video games using their name and their number and their image and their likeness. They're making a bunch of money. And so there was a lawsuit. There was a bunch of stuff that happened. So now it's like if you're going to use that name, that image, that likeness, then, then credit has to go where credit is due. The idea that we're image bearers of God is that we represent God to reflect his glory so that he receives credit, glory, and honor for our lives and actions. So we live our lives and our actions with that in mind, that I'm reflecting the glory of God or I'm perverting the glory of God. Alan Roth says this in his commentary, the significance of the word image should be connected to the divine purpose for human the idea being that we were created to represent God in and over his created order. Ross breaks this down into two primary applications. Number one, human. so two applications that Ross is, is giving about the fact that Image bearing, image bearing is connected to divine purpose. So the fact that we're God's image bearers is, uh, the reality is that we have divine purpose. The first one is this, humans have the ability to produce life through reproduction. What is unique about the human reproduction of life is that it is not only the reproduction of physical life, but of a spiritual soul who possesses all those things we just talked about. Spiritual life, ethical and moral understanding, conscience, and representation of God. We're driving down the road today. I keep, uh, I keep uh, sunflower seeds in the, in the car. To, to, I like chewing sunflower seeds, and Mo grabbed a sunflower seed, and he said, hey, if we take this home, dig a hole, bury it in the yard, will it grow a sunflower tree? And I was like, that would be awesome, but no. <laughs> like, like, I would love if there was such a thing as sunflower. But the idea of reproduce, like seed bearing plants, then will reproduce after its own kind. We saw that last week. We're actually going to see another allusion or reference to that later. We don't reproduce that way. We don't carbon copy. You take a banana, it produces a banana. A banana's a banana. I like bananas, but a banana ain't going to get you far in life. All right? When you reproduce a conscience-bearing, ethical, moral, image-bearing soul that is eternal, you are doing so as an image-bearer of God. So we're unique in that sense, in that purpose. The second thing hum that humans have that is unique to humanity in reflection of the divine presence is that humans are to have dominion over the world. Ross explains dominion this way. The terms used suggest putting down opposition and were perhaps used in anticipa anticipation of the conflict with evil. In other words, God creates Adam and says, you take dominion, there's going to be evil that's going to come at you, there's going to be the potential for, for, for submission to that evil, 
take dominion over it. So this anticipation of evil. As the scriptures unfold, however, one realizes how humans have failed at this task. The New Testament states that we do not yet see all things under his dominion, but Jesus Christ, the express image of the Father, will ultimately reestablish such dominion. Hebrews 2, 8 and 9. So dominion has the idea of bringing into subjection that which would press itself against the authority of God. It was both, both a physical and spiritual component to the dominion that man was to take and maintain. For the believer, our war and dominion is first, foremost, and primarily spiritual. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So our world, when it comes to what we take dominion over, is first and foremost and primarily spiritual. Take dominion and over your thoughts, subject them to the authority of Christ, bring the desires of the flesh into the submission of the desires of the spirit. It's a, it's a constant battle that we're in when it comes to dominion. And he says that we're as image bearers of God to take dominion. He gets into the idea of creating both male and female, which is a directive at gender and sexuality. Here in the created order, we have a clear basis for gender and sexuality, and we will quickly move into God's divine purpose for marriage over the next couple of weeks. From the onset of creation, we see gender distinction as well as gender equality. Consider three effects of God's design in making humans gender distinct and sexual in nature. First, humans are sexual by design. Second, humans are sexual by function. And third, sex will be fulfilling physically, but also fulfilling spiritually when carried out according to God's purpose and plan. This is why the New Testament will say, if you join yourself to someone sexually, it's a spiritual union that takes place. It's not just physical, it's physical and spiritual. But he says both male and female are created in his image with monogamy as the goal for the marital relationship and complementary roles within that. Both men and women, male and female, are image bearers of God. In addition to the physical and spiritual experiences and fulfillment of sex, there's also an image-bearing function that we mentioned that we mentioned in reference to earlier, that man and woman as image bearers of God have the capacity to reproduce human life in body and in spirit. Throughout Genesis, there is a consistent teaching that divine blessing is associated with this mandate. In other words, you'll see throughout the book of Genesis, blessing associated with reproduction and the replenishing of the earth. So the scripture will often teach that children are a blessing or heritage from the Lord. With this mandate, God wants the entire world to be filled with people who will be his representatives in stewardship over creation. ESV study Bible notes say this. Here the idea is that the man and woman are to make the earth's resources beneficial for themselves, which implies that they would investigate and develop the earth's resources to make them useful for human beings generally. This command provides a foundation for wise, scientific, and technological development. Evil uses to which people have put their dominion come as a result of the later fall in Genesis 3. What God wants from us as his representatives is caring stewardship, not dominion for sinful or selfish game. But after Genesis 3, that certainly has been the case throughout history. 
So the dominion we're to take is a stewarding, shepherding dominion that reflects who God is as his representatives. In verse 31, he says, everything was very good. Consider the brokenness of the world and the effects of sin. This verse reminds us that by God's design, everything was very good. The brokenness is the result of man's rebellion. This is a struggle that we all are going to have at some point. Why is the world so broken? Where's God when bad things happen? Why do good things happen to bad people? God created a perfect world and said this is very good. And as we saw in chapter 1, he est- the first part of chapter 1, he established this world for man to inhabit and flourish and thrive physically and spiritually. God put all those things in place. We're, we're the ones responsible for the brokenness. Chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he created on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God, he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. This gets really, this is really neat. You'll see this throughout Scripture, this idea of rest being something that God talks about in terms of the soul and spirit and, and existence of man, that we can rest in the presence and the will of the Lord. The rest on the seventh day represented more than God simply ceasing from work. It was a sanctified day, meaning it was a set-apart day that would be different from the other days. God's establishing the order by which man will function. He later gives clarity to that when he uh, gives Israel the law and he sets aside the seventh day as a Sabbath. It's, it's, w- what this day is, is this day is sanctified. Now, when we think of sanctification, we tend to think that word sanctification, we think of the progressive work that every Christian goes through where as a believer, you're continually, I'm continually being conformed and shaped and molded more into the image of Christ. That's sanctification. But to be sanctified also means to be set apart for a specific holy purpose. The seventh day of rest is a day that is set aside to rest and focus on who God is and to worship God, but also to reflect on the goodness of God in his creation. God didn't rest because he was weary or tired. It's a much richer, deeper, fuller idea. So let's think about this word rest. This is the the next word that we want to look at. The biblical concept of the earth in relationship to God is that the earth is his sanctuary. It is to be his dwelling place and a place where his praise will be inhabited. The scripture teaches that even the created order reflects his glory. Think about Psalm 19. We saw this last last week as as a reference that the heavens declare the glory of God. Creation reflects some aspect of who God is. Romans 1 Paul walks through how people take the created glory, the, the creation that reflects the glory of God, and they exalt it over the creation, the creator. The creation is exalted over the creator. But the created order is here as a means of reflecting the glory of God. It reflects his, his glory, and his image bearers who don't choose to worship him need to understand that even the rocks will cry out and worship. In the ancient East, divine rest is associated with temple building. In other words, the earth would be the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. In the, in the ancient East, they would take a temple. They, they still do this. You go, like, like uh, our guys that just got back from India and our people that live there and people that travel to, to particularly Eastern cultures, the temple is where the God hangs out. Look, we went, we went uh, there, a couple years ago, we were up there, in the, one year we rented a house in Jammu City, and we went, it's the biggest Hindu temple, it was like the Mecca of Hindu. We went up there and cruised through that, that dude was trippy, you could only go so far, 
They would only let you go so far. But there's like, it's, there's considered within those sacred buildings that this is a dwelling place. And God would say, no, 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 creation is my dwelling place. The world is my tabernacle. The skies are the ceiling to my glory that you experience with your own eyes and ears and all of your senses engaged. And then Christ will pare this down and say, but watch this. But you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body because your body is the temple of the living God. You've got this picture being laid out where the world is created and set up for God to dwell with man and inhabit, which will later be turned into this indwelling of the Holy Spirit into the heart of man. This will correlate with the instruction God will later give Israel to set aside a day uh, a week for worship, as we said earlier. And then uh, jump to verse 4 of chapter 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Remember, this is the earliest stage. We, we, we talked about those stages that we're going to see in Genesis. Chapters 1 through 11 are the primeval stage. Um, and then, and then we'll move into the, you know, from there, we'll start to go through the patriarchal stage and different stages of history in the Pentateuch itself. But particularly in Genesis, we'll look at three stages of history. These are the generations when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and water in the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pashon, the, the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the, the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. I would just say that some of my pronunciations might be Vienna sausage pronunciations. So you have to go check, check your lexicon on that. All right, the Gihon. I don't know, Gihon, Gihon, Guhon, whatever it is. It's a river. But I know what the Tigris and the Euphrates are, so we get kind of, we're starting to get like a physical um, picture of where this, uh, where this garden was put um, that man was going to inhabit. So God's created the whole, like all of the created order, but then in this one place that is going to be unique to the inhabitation of man where humanity will begin, he calls, he calls Eden. The first chapter last week highlighted the importance of the word of God in creation. God spoke and creation obeyed. In this chapter, the word of God becomes the test of obedience for humans. As God spoke and creation obeyed, now God speaks to man and man will have the responsibility and the opportunity to obey. In verses 5 and 6, we see the earliest stage of creation that God had prepared for man's habitation Something that stood out to me so powerfully last week was the idea that God had spoken into creation a world that he was already preparing for men to inhabit and in which the Lord would inhabit with him. The Lord had created a world that was not yet producing anything but was prepared for abundant growth. It had not yet produced anything, but it was prepared for that. The big idea in these verses points us to verse 7. God is focused in verses 5 and 6. God is focusing. 
attention on the culmination and crowning point of all of creation, and that is human life. It's interesting that all of creation is spoken into existence. Stars, boom. Tree life, boom. Sea life, boom. Grizzly bears, white-tailed buck deer, munching on clover, boom. Red-tailed hawk sitting on a limb, boom. Chubby old groundhog, croaking bullfrog, free as a... F- Anybody with me? Dixieland delight. Like, boom, boom, boom. God's just snapping. It's happening. He's speaking. And as he speaks, boom, it happens. Then he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. And he begins to breathe and form. There's even something unique about the way God creates the human. God doesn't create the man the way he created any, anything else. Breathed, formed. Breathed, formed. Why is it different? Well, first, because God is weaving together a living being with a soul. Think of crowning achievements, Tom Brady and Super Bowls, Michael Jordan and rings. Think of, uh, I was, I was uh, reading a really, y'all know I'm a, an Andy Griffith show fanatic. I was reading an article about Don Knotts where he talked about the struggle to get beyond the character he played on that show. It, we, we think of artists and actors having a crowning achievement Politicians having a crowning achievement. God's crowning achievement in creation was to create one who would bear his image and reflect his glory like nothing else can. You, as a human, are the crowning culmination and achievement of creation. You're more than a cluster of sails. God formed as he breathed. The idea is that there was creative intentionality and planning in the way man was put together. It wasn't random. Study sometime the atom or the cell and the complexities parallel that of the galaxies and universes. God breathed the very breath of God being given to bring more than just physical animation. The breath of God will bring spiritual understanding and conscience that functions to God as a man. Going back to the first thing we looked at in this text, the conclusion is that God is breathing into the man all that makes him an image bearer, conscience, spirituality, ethics, morality, and representation. In this primeval period, trees and rivers are introduced as a source of life and fertility in the Garden of Eden. And flowing to the known world in the middle of this detailed account of creation, God has established the setting for men to worship him, find fulfillment in that worship, and in his work of stewardship over creation to be obedient. Because the blessing always brings responsibility. That's a principle that's important for us. When you receive blessing in your life, Understand that there is responsibility that comes with that blessing. The responsibility of man is to obey the commands of the Lord. Consider the stark contrast between all that God has created for the man to partake of and enjoy and experience and the short list of prohibitions. Massive list of things he gets to enjoy. Short list of prohibitions. See all this? Yours. See these two things right here? Nope. The stage is set for man to find fulfillment in work and worship, to embrace the responsibility of blessing and to worship the Lord and to live in fellowship and harmony with one another and with God and particularly within the marriage union and relationship. In verses 15 through 17, we'll wrap up our text for the evening. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the end of the day that, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The, listen, this is so good. The word for put, the Lord God put the man 
in the garden. The word for put is from the Hebrew word for rest. Ross explains it means to be placed or put in this passage, but the choice of the word with overtones of rest is important. The word is cognate to rest, which is used elsewhere to refer to the rest God would give his people in the promised land. The idea is that man might live in the garden where God has placed him and well in peace dwell in peace, resting in the purposes God has established for him. The garden was to be a place of work. Work's not a result of the fall. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you, you draw gratification from your work? I love to work. Maybe too much sometimes. We draw, that's God's design for us. But he put him there that he might rest in the work, not find his identity in the work. To rest there, to dwell there, to experience that, so important to drill into sometimes the, the words. Kilby's taking her Hebrew exam today online. She sent me, she, you know, she lives in Uganda. She takes this, these classes at Southeastern. She sends me uh, a, a one she had, uh, uh, she had to translate a verse in Hebrew, and she wrote out her Hebrew stuff, and then um, it, the translation actually said, the whole earth is filled with hams. <laughs> and then it said, and God forbid. And I thought, okay. Drop that last part, and the whole earth is filled with hams. And then we had a big debate, country ham or honey ham, country ham all day. But like, you know, like, but it's important to get the, to, to understand something. Usually, if we read the Bible, we're like, like we've been gifted with English translations. But once in a while, there's a nugget. And the idea that the word put is associated with rest, I think is super helpful. The most peaceful place you and I can live, here's the application, is in the will of God being obedient to his plans and purposes for us. That's where rest exists. In the last two words we consider work and keep. These are verbs that are used throughout the Old Testament for spiritual submission and service to the Lord. The word keep is the same word used for keeping the commandments of God and taking heed to obey his word. And the word work and keep, the word work means to serve, referring to the service with, with which the Lord would receive highest honor and the privilege that, that we could serve him by working to carry out his commandments and fulfill his plans for our lives. The man has been given the task of serving the Lord in worship, keeping the commandments of the Lord, and being obedient. And in all this, man will find peace and rest for his soul. In conclusion, the man and the woman have been given the opportunity to serve and obey the Lord in the creation that he has created for them, and to live and dwell in the presence of God. And we have been given the same opportunity. We will learn in the coming weeks that our first representative, father and mother, failed in the garden God had created. But thousands of years later, the one who would come as the seed of the woman, who would be the second Adam, our second representative, would go into another garden, sweat drops of blood, fulfill the promise to crush the head of the serpent, go to the cross, conquer and defeat the sin that had poisoned humanity, and we get to live in the light of that garden and that victory. Let's pray. God, I pray tonight that you take the gravity and the reality of your word, and you would stitch it and sew it deeply into our hearts that we wouldn't just be cultural Christians who pray and say grace before the meal and take our hats off and show respect and honor, but that we would understand there is a deeply woven spirituality in the heart of every human. The fabric of humanity is spiritual as it is physical. And that as living souls, we are your image bearers and that we would strive to 
to fulfill and carry out what you've now empowered us by your spirit to do. I pray that we would respond to you in every way that you would have us to respond for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.